you're listening to Just Asking. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet, when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality, and certainly don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng, and I'm talking again to my friend Jackie, and we're talking about today what exactly? You know, it seems like Bill O'Reilly's been all <laughs> over the news lately. Um, seems like a good time to talk about um, sexual harassment in the workplace. Yeah, and that's the uh, formula, formulaic term, although I'm hearing a lot of people talk about baller culture lately, too. What is baller culture? Yeah, I think baller... it sounds wrong. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think baller culture, you know, see, that's me getting serious all of a sudden. And I, of course, it's it's wrong, but it's, um, you know, based on that the TV show baller. And, and before that, it was a slang term uh, and had an existence referring to people who were freed up and especially the uh, hyper male, uh, alpha male types who were so successful that they didn't have to worry about really anything except making the next million dollar deal. And their sense of entitlement grew and grew until they finally, being so full of pride, were able to treat other people around them like they were dirt. So, you know, for example, the people at Uber and Bill O'Reilly, uh, I think give baller culture its worst black eye ever and make it look really bad but it was never really good to begin with so so the sense of entitlement you said that allows them to treat people like um, dirt makes them think they can treat people like dirt obviously nobody's allowed well who would who would allow us right i mean who who has the authority to allow us but they actually are allowed in our society by so many forces um you know culturally and historically when rich and powerful people control whether or not you're going to get a paycheck this week or be employed in your industry for the rest of your life, they do have an awful lot of power that, that is very real. It's very tangible. And so what makes them think that this is okay? Like, what, what is it that makes them think? Like Bill Cosby, who, you know, obviously this isn't a new thing. Um, he was doing this, you know, decades ago. What makes them think that this is okay, that they can get away with it? Well, you know, that's a really great question because I think for most of us, when we think of baller culture, it's such a, a new and wonderfully vulgar term <laughs> that we think we associate it with the young. And the stereotype there would be the 20-something Silicon Valley billionaire who had a startup company and went from living in his mother's basement to overnight being fabulously wealthy and thinking life will always be this wonderful and I will never want for anything again. And finally, the world recognizes my genius and women bow down before me. And that that stereotype, I think, is kind of new for our age. But when you bring up these older guys like Bill Cosby and, um, well, Bill O'Reilly, uh, clearly the problem is the first name Bill. Um, <laughs> clearly because that there's something wrong with that name but you know i think bill o'reilly is a good example and so is bill cosby those were not men who were born into money and when you think about anyone 
who has gone through deprivation and struggle um, and then has made a fortune and made a real success of their career, there's that tendency that so many of us have had over our lifetime to think, and that success is all about me. I remember uh, not so long ago, we had a president who said something about how, you know, you didn't build that by yourself. And he took a lot of criticism for that. But when you think of any of our accomplishments in life, including a fabulous career that got off to a, a meteor-like uh, ascent, we have a we have a tendency to think it really is just because of me. We don't we don't typically give credit to the teachers who got us there. We don't typically give credit to oh the guys who built the road that made it possible for me to drive to work today or to all the other people in my life who made so much of a difference. Down nobody alone builds anything in human society. But but I think these individuals and and we could I think it's it, we could call them narcissists, and they and they are, but I'm not sure that they're clinically narcissistic. They're, uh, I don't know that they satisfy the diagnostic criteria for narcissism, but they're certainly absorbed with an insane amount of self-regard. So, so lots of people have self-regard, um, <laughs> including you and me. I mean, we have we have a little bit of self-regard, but I guess here. You're talking about somebody who feels like it's okay to coerce a woman into behavior that she obviously doesn't want to do, or in Bill Cosby's case, actually drugging her to do it. Um, And I guess it's that. What makes them think that that's okay, actually violating another person just because they want to? Well, we're talking about horrible behavior, but... It's not unlike the behavior I think we've seen throughout human history where uh, a man, and it's, by the way, it is mostly men we're talking about, right? Uh, Where a man gets a political power and decides to invade his neighbor's territory and uh, kill all the men, rape all the women, and take all of the gold. And that's, that's kind of a common thing in human history where people get power and it goes to their head. And when you have young men, it goes to their head because of inexperience and immaturity. When you have older guys like Bill Cosby and Bill O'Reilly, you know, I I think, again, it goes back to their earliest days were more of a struggle. And they, too, are, in a sense, new millionaires, new billionaires. And for them, it's, well, this is what defines the good times, is that I can reach out and do whatever I want. So it's not so much about sex as it is about the power and the way that you show power over women is through sex. Yeah, and that's just, yeah, you're right. That's just one of the ways. It might be the way you demean the uh, employees who work around your residence. It could be uh, demeaning your staff by being short and not only short-tempered, but uh, curt and downright abusive with them. Hollywood, for example, is full of those stories of the star or starlet who just behaves really badly once they've reached a certain level of fame and, and... and fortune in their lives. The same thing is true with on the stock market, you know, Wall Street millionaires and billionaires who uh, come into their money and then behave badly. It's It goes back to that wonderful saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So obviously women have power too. Um, so what makes you say that this is primarily an issue about men? 
Well, you know, I think it's a an important thing to recognize that men and women are handled differently in our culture sexually. We are socialized differently. We think about our sexuality differently. Um, most people would agree that women have more of a burden to behave uh, very well when it comes to sexuality. And I think they suffer a greater loss of reputation when they fail to adhere to society's norms. Whereas men can engage in the same behavior and society is far more tolerant of that sort of misconduct when it's coming from a male. So, you know, certainly we have our Leona Helmsleys who behave very badly once they come into their money and they treat people terribly. But she's not, um, she doesn't have the male boy in her office um, servicing her sexually. You know, that kind of thing doesn't typically happen. And why is that? I think most most therapists would agree women in this way are much better at sexual repression than men. So when we talk about sexual deviance uh, as a diagnosis and people who are voyeurs or ex exhibitionists, certainly there are, are men and women who are uh, diagnosable in any of those conditions. But the rate is about 30 to 1 and for every single woman who is uh, diagnosable with one of these conditions there are about 30 guys and they're but but if you ask the same group of uh, people listening to this uh, how many of you women collect shoes you see a lot of hands go up and what's that all about well the same nerve endings that are connected to the genitalia lie they they link up to the same part of the brain that experiences uh, sensation in the feet so when men are complimenting women at the shoe store, wow, those look really great on you. There's a little freeze of sexual pleasure. And when, even when the, when the shoes are somewhat painful to wear, uh, I think that's titillating that same area of the brain. So it's just that, that women can't afford to uh, be known as sexual mischief makers and not have it destroy their reputation in most most fields of human endeavor. Do you think that it might also be, um, you know, you talk about how we're biologically wired. Um, women, in general, are attracted to power. Young women. Whereas young men, maybe not as much. Maybe the opportunity's not there. Like, you talk about this young man who, in, you know, starts his company, gets all this money, or a basketball player who's all of a sudden a millionaire, that they have access to women because of that, whereas an older woman, you know, might not. Well, David, uh, Dr. David Buss from University of Texas wrote a great book called The Evolution of Desire. And he surveyed the, the vast number of studies in this field, that, the, the studies that address this subject. And men seem to be the descendants of those who felt that power and status were very attractive in men. And with women, uh, we seem to be all descended from people, men and women, who believed that youth and beauty were the most attractive uh, and the most powerful attractants. And there's, there are biological reasons for this that have to do with the survival of our offspring. And, I, and, you know, when you have a man with a lot of money, his kids tend to be better taken care of than the poor man. And when you have women who are young and beautiful, that correlates with physical health and good good uh, genetic material, and her children tend to be healthier and, and more long-lived and uh, to reproduce better than children whose 
parents look like a Picasso painting. So we, you know, when we you think about that, it's, yeah, we're wired pretty much biologically this way. Well, and I don't want to imply that because they have access to these women that this behavior is okay. What I, here's what I'm wondering is you get in a position of power, you're a man in position of power, and all of a sudden you have opportunities maybe that you didn't have before with the opposite sex, right? right? right. But then does that kind of transcend to where you think all women? Like, because these women were interested in you, and I and I love them, but I'm thinking of Bill Clinton, you know? Mm-hmm. Somebody who has these women kind of available to him, and obviously he should know better, um, but he doesn't. Oh, so I now I understand what you're saying. you got to forgive me. Being I'm a sorry. male, I thought you meant that... So you're thinking men actually relate to women. No, I'm, I'm, no, I don't think that they do. I, I guess I Because was... I don't think these guys are relating to women. It's not an intimate relationship. Women are objectified. They're just another thing on the beach to pick up. Right. Okay. Like a beautiful shell. Right. So, and I guess, and I've argued with you this before, but now I'm going to go ahead and just say, okay, fine, you're right. Um, what? I know. It's crazy. Because I, I, you know, I like to say men and women are always equal. It's always the same. And when you say it's all men, I'm like, no, I have to argue with you on that. Oh, no, I don't think it's all men. I think it's... You know, look, and maybe I misspoke. What I'm trying to say is that for the narcissist who is incapable of intimacy, he may be a, a, a jovial kind of a fellow. He may tell great jokes. He may be a brilliant raconteur, uh, a wonderful businessman. But if you're not capable of intimacy, you don't really see women as people because no one around you is a person the way that you're a person. So all of these other people in your universe are there to serve you. So, and and the people who are capable of intimacy don't do that, including the men who are capable of intimacy. So that's a really good transition then, because we're talking about, you know, Bill O'Reilly and Bill O'Cosby and Bill, Bill O'Cosby. O'Cosby. <laughs> Bill O'Reilly, Bill Cosby and Bill Clinton. So don't name your <laughs> child Bill. Um, like they're an anomaly. But one of the things that you talk about is in every business environment, this is something that could happen and something that needs to be addressed. I guess I would say in every power environment. So it could be in the military uh, where, you know, a general is in charge and the temptation is going to be there for him because he has a lot of power and he can't abuse his power. In business, certainly, same thing is going to happen. But the same thing is also true in ecclesiastical circles with the church and and in any other field of human endeavor power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and that includes our sexuality and when you add narcissism uh, to that plus immaturity you end up with a a pretty high-risk situation right sure so let's just talk about like a normal business environment how does a man or a a business manager because obviously women supervisors should be aware of this as well. This isn't, you know, it's their problem if this happens in their business. Um, How do you address it ahead of time? How do you prevent sexuality from disrupting your business ahead of time? You know, that's a really great question because I think what, what the problem is we don't consider sexuality. We don't work it into our algorithm for business success. And if we're going to be successful in business, we have got to remember that our sexuality is the most portable part of who we are. 
and it goes with us into every business meeting, every conversation, and everything it is that we do. If we fail to take our sexuality into account, it's like failing to consider a, a rival, a competitor out there in the, in the marketplace who could destroy us overnight in terms of our business by simply introducing a new product or a new twist on an old product. So remembering sexuality is part of not only employee health and welfare, but remembering sexuality, I think, starts at the top. And, and I think that's a, a huge consideration that is terribly overlooked in our workplace now because typically when we see sexual harassment training that is offered in a workplace, it's genu generally um, pretty unhelpful. It's unhelpful because it tends to, first of all, identify what is sexual harassment. And most of us really already understand that. We already know that behaving like an ass is not acceptable. But somehow certain men wrap their brains around it being okay and they go ahead and go for it. Now, where do they get the idea that it's okay? Where do they get the idea that they wouldn't be putting their entire career at risk with this behavior and that people aren't going to call them out on it. I think it's not a bottom-up culture issue. I think it's a top-down culture issue. And I think it starts with the CEO at the top. And that the good thing about that for CEOs who are a little nervous about my saying that is that it puts all the power and the control back in their hands. If they truly want to have a successful workplace that's free of sexual harassment claims and lawsuits and the loss of key personnel and uh, loss of productivity and all the rest that comes with that, gosh, I'm thinking the more I think about it, the more devastating the damage is because it's loss of reputation in the, in the workplace, in the community, and in the world at large. It just, you know, it goes on and on. But if they're really wanting to do something like that, CEOs have to be willing to take a, a wide-eyed look at themselves and how well they're managing their sexuality. And that's not an, it's not enough for a CEO to look at his marriage and say, well, I'm married and I, I don't fool around, so everything's okay. I think the issue has to be far more informed than that. And the question is, how well are you managing your sexual needs? Now, that's a term that we don't even use in our society, this idea of sexual needs. People don't think about it. Nobody's been trained to think about it. But clearly we're sexual beings, and just like we're social beings and have social needs, we are emotional beings with emotional needs. We're intellectual beings with intellectual needs. And we're spiritual beings with spiritual needs. Well, it would be really odd if we had some dimension to our humanity that didn't have its commensurate needs attached to it. And without those needs getting met appropriately, we're at risk for trying to get them met inappropriately. And that's the problem CEOs have. If a CEO has been fortunate and he married a great woman and they have a great marriage and things are going along swimmingly for decades, that's fantastic. I'm really happy for him. But even a great CEO at the top of his game, like Jack Welch, can find himself in some sexual hot water that he never would have expected. He never saw coming. And in hindsight, the fact that he never saw it coming or never even gave any consideration to the possibility of having that kind of problem, in hindsight, it's just naive to be thinking that way. It's naive to think um, any of my needs are simply going to take care of themselves. 
then I can ignore my need for good nutrition or adequate sleep or for proper exercise or for um, professional development where I go to trainings and I keep learning and learning and learning. I've got to be taking care of myself as a CEO. And when I do that, I set a model for all of the other managers in my company. And if I fail to do that, then I have failed them in terms of leadership. When you say set, you know, you're, you're modeling the behavior, obviously they're not coming to work and talking about sex and talking about how great their sex was with, with their wife last night. I mean, they're not doing that. Right. Hopefully. So, <laughs> so how do you model, how do you model behavior that you, that you are, um, that you have your sexuality, intelligent sexuality under control? How do you model that? Well, managing intel sexuality intelligently includes being able to find the right people to talk to about my sexuality. But it also means as a leader, uh, making an example by bringing sexuality into the workplace in terms of a topic. It's a topic that we need to discuss in terms of employee health and welfare. It's a topic we need to take into account when we're assigning different people to different posts. And if I, as a CEO, am going to really manage my sexuality intelligently and lead my company to a good level of productivity and, and, and growth, I have to work sexuality into all of my decisions. And that would include the people I hire. It also is going to affect the people I fire. It's important to bring sex, I think, and sexuality itself, not just intercourse, but sexuality itself, out of the closet and, and find an appropriate business-like way to talk about this part of our human existence. So can we talk about Mike Pence for a second? Sure. And his statement that he would not have dinner with any woman unless his wife was present. And um, which sounds like, you know, really nice dedication to his wife. Uh, but it sounds like there's some issues here. And it obviously affects the women who work for him in a negative way, regardless. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of Bill O'Reilly, where he's just like, won't talk to women at all um, alone. So what's that about? You know, um, it may seem funny. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Mike Pence or the Republican Party right now, but although I used to be one, um, I think his behavior reflects a certain humble assessment of his own weaknesses. That he can't be alone with another woman. Precisely. I, I think what he's saying there, if I understand him, is that he really likes women and he really likes sex and he really appreciates uh, an attractive woman and that he doesn't want anybody to misunderstand anything. And he respects the power of human sexuality so that he is unwilling to put himself in any situation that could be misconstrued. Now, if he follows up with this, he's the last guy who's ever going to be accused of sexual harassment. If he follows up with this, he's the last guy who's ever going to be sued over misconduct with a female employee. But he could be the guy who gets sued for sexual discrimination. How so? Um, because obviously a lot of business a lot of business decisions happen in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And it seems like women like women leaders in his who work for him are being denied opportunities that men are not. You know, he's not having private conversations over dinner with his women leaders that he might be having with men. 
Well, you know what? Uh, you, you really pose a challenging question to me, but this is part of the challenge of our working together as men and women in the workplace. We ignore sexuality at our peril. So how then can I manage this? Well, maybe I don't meet one-on-one with, with, an, attract- with an attractive woman or, an, or even another guy in my office. Typically, uh, you know, I, I think most business meetings involve more than two people. They involve a group or a team who are poring over something and, and looking at uh, different details. And you need the team to make the, the proper judgment, to have the proper information. So, you know, I, I don't really see a need for any two people to be together privately in in that secluded sense. Now, could two people be in a room? Sure. Could two people, I mean, I could I could easily imagine Mike Pence in an office with the door open, talking to a woman. So, they still have privacy. They can still have a conversation. But nobody is wondering, as they have but for the last year, about the governor of Alabama right? and what's going on there with him. So so the way that, that he's managing his sexuality is by acknowledging his weaknesses, um, making it clear to everybody what they are, what the rules are. But then the second part of that would be to treat everybody the same. Absolutely. Right. So so if I'm not going to have dinner alone with a woman, I'm not going to have dinner alone with a man. Right. Although, you know, one of the things I this and this will probably seem politically incorrect to a lot of people, but I think men and women need to spend time with their own gender at times just to take a break from dealing with the other gender. I think it's okay for women to hang out with women. I think it's okay for men to hang out with men. And so for I don't I have no idea what Mike Pence's affiliations are but i imagine he could belong to an athletic club that is for men only i could imagine him belonging to some kind of a social group that's for men only Um, and i think that that's okay what we want to avoid is even the appearance of impropriety where i'm not going to be using those occasions to be discussing business those are recreational those are social and it's not a wink wink covert place for us to make deals that exclude the women from the from the male uh, decision-making. Okay, so so you've just changed my mind a little bit about Mike Pence, so good on you. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I think he does it to avoid all the, the drama around this, you know, that, because there's drama around the behavior, but there's also drama around false accusations. The FBI has documented innumerable uh, instances of uh, false accusations of rape, and, and that does happen, and and uh, locally, I think every community has experienced that at some level where someone, of, of, and I've seen it uh, in my own local area, where individuals who are in their teens uh, or in their, their middle years at the top of their game in their business, they're accused of sexual impropriety. And, well, a year or two later, the matter is all resolved and there was no criminal act. Um, the uh, accuser is... Uh, admitted that it was all made up. But in the meantime, what happens to your business? You have a huge distraction and maybe the loss of a great deal of money, and it's hard to make a comeback after an accusation like that. So in a perfect world, let's just say that we live in a perfect world for a moment, and um, a manager, male or female, has a regular relation, or they don't, maybe they're single. How do they manage the sexuality of their company. 
how does a middle manager do that? No, how does a how does the owner because some of the people we're talking about are two people who have an idea, they start a business, they're working day and night to start this business, but again, they're just regular people. They're not super powerful, but they have this team and they're all working together and and things happen. You know? If things happen, is that a euphemism for people get sexually involved? Sometimes. Yeah, well, Some, people sometimes. do. And, and, so, and then bad things happen when the relationship ends sometimes. So, so how would you... It's a bit awkward at work, trying right? to work with somebody with whom you've had an affair, yeah. But, you know, how do you, how do you address this, this type of thing from, from the beginning so it's not... Well, you know, I, <laughs> I think the day will come in our future where we will look back at a time like this and think, oh my God, those poor people, they didn't know anything. Because we routinely teach young entrepreneurs how to build stuff and how to um, organize a company and how to uh, conduct accounting procedures and all of that that goes into business. Why aren't we teaching them how to manage this very powerful part of the human experience? I think someday in business uh, classes, they will be teaching something about managing sexuality in the workplace. And I think it's long overdue, frankly. So when you're interviewing people, when you're working together with people, I think it's just part of taking that into account, just as some companies t do not take into account that their employees need adequate rest, uh, and other companies don't take into account that moving is very stressful on, on families. There are there are going to be companies out there that are harder and companies that are better. And the companies that are better at this, at, at helping their employees have a healthy and wholesome sexuality, those companies are going to get rated uh, as a better place to work than the other places. So when you're talking about um, managing this, are you saying to be as direct as... So like the, the company that I work with... Um, we cuss and we make dirty jokes and, you know, all the time. Um, but it's very clear that, that sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, that that is not tolerated. Right. And I'm not sure how we know that, except for that it just has never happened. And you know what I mean? It's like it's obvious that the culture is one of mutual respect. Um, are you saying that this is something that should be communicated in an interview? Hey, it's okay if you cuss. It's okay if you make dirty jokes. But don't do this. In, in my counseling office, I work with groups of men a lot, and I, I, since I'm not running a Sunday school, I, I too don't care whether or not people are swearing. It just doesn't matter in terms of the, the mission that we have before us. But if anybody uses a sexist term, uh, that's 10 push-ups. So I do make that clear. I, I think it's good to let people know the rules of the game. But I think something else is going on in your business because nobody's ever talked about it, and I would bet uh, dollars to donuts that your boss, the CEO, sets a very clear example uh, in his own personal life as to how he treats people and what he expects and how he interacts. I doubt that he awards raises and uh, promotions on the basis of who's sexually the most fl flirtatious. <laughs> and I think he doesn't take advantage of whatever position and power he has to try to extract sexual favors. The fact that he's a living example of um, that kind of proper behavior in the workplace makes it really clear to anybody who has a clue, uh, like, you know, what would be acceptable here that, uh, that, that sort of behavior is not going to fly. So, so, so leading by example, 
and again, not, and, and you're absolutely correct on, on everything you just said about him, um, but leading by example and then also making it clear when somebody does step out of line and kind of our joke is um, wherever the line is, the line is wherever, he, whatever he just said. <laughs> um, but, but to being able, being willing to talk about it and being willing to say like, and even like with my son, sometimes he'll say things and we're both very sarcastic with one another and I'll just say, okay, too far. Right. Right. Too far. Step right. back. That hurt my feelings. But you have to be willing to say that because I, I know, I know when the whole sexual harassment and, I, and I'm going to say just started in the eighties, obviously it started way before that, but, oh, yeah. but in the eighties was when women started suing and, and it became, oh, just, you know, she's like that you don't want her around because she's probably going to be offended and we can't put up pictures and we can't make dirty jokes anymore because there's women in the workplace. Absolutely, which explains why so many people don't file grievances or file reports with HR and or even go to their lawyers and talk about things. They don't believe they're going to be believed and they don't believe that anything good will come out of it. And in fact, they often believe that it'll hurt their their careers. And sadly, a lot of that is true a lot of the time. But... If we're going to be successful, the same CEO who's got to be willing to manage sexuality intelligently in the workplace, part of the way he does that is by empowering all of those around him to confront unacceptably abusive behavior. So if we're going to be uh, free of the kind of sexism that, that we're talking about, women managers have to get that message as well. Women managers have to be able to throw up a hand and say, hold it, that's just not acceptable. And the pressure is on all of us to be able to to really hold the line on that. Well, and even on this one, I, on this one, I think that women are um, can be as guilty as men. Um, you know, we got some mouths on us sometimes, and sometimes women are much more comfortable having conversations and will do so in front of men who don't want to hear it. Right? Who who are uncomfortable? Right. Sure. With it. And, and the women have to be as sensitive to that to say, okay, we don't have this conversation, you know, here or in front of this person. Well, one of the things that, that I end up working on with my clients is living an abuse-free life. And how do you do that when your boss is abusive? And for my clients, uh, most of them decide that it would be better to lose the job if the, if losing the job is part of standing up for myself if if the only way I'm keeping this job is by tolerating verbal abuse then it's um, it's just going to be have to be a profound lesson in my personal development uh, so that I can go on to the next job and be even clearer about my boundaries and what I'm willing to what conditions I'm willing to work under so sexual harassment to me is just one type of harassment it, it, it's a it's a significant one and it's a, a terrible one but the boss who barks at his male employees is also abusing them. The boss who swears at his employees and puts them down uh, is also abusing them. So I think we all need to learn to be empowered to the point where we are free to speak up and say, you know, that's really not going to work for me. And again, I'm thinking your boss is probably one of those guys who would be totally okay with that kind of feedback. But even like a coworker. I mean, it, you need to be comfortable saying, hey, can you not? Yeah, dude. You, dude, or, or woman. You just yeah. made me very uncomfortable, can you not? Right? And then, and then hopefully they are respectful enough to stop doing it. Well, 
uh, hopeful. Uh, I mean, you sound very tentative when you said that that way because no, no, I, the abuse-free life for me is a commitment. So I'm going at my in my home and at my workplace. I'm going to have an abuse-free life one way or another. And if I've confronted someone about abuse, there's a policy and a procedure for going on to the next step if that's ignored. I mean, ultimately, the person with the pain is the person with the problem. And if I'm the one who's feeling put upon, uh, the responsibility is mine to go ahead and do something proactive about that. And hopefully every HR uh, has a policy regarding abuse in the workplace, and that would include abuse of all kinds. So if a fellow employee isn't getting the, the idea by my attempt to set a boundary, then I have a legitimate cause to go talk to HR about that. Well, okay. And what if you're in a small company that doesn't have HR? Well, and, and again, in, in a small company, there's usually a single boss uh, in a sole proprietorship. And it's usually a matter of walking across a hallway and saying, hey, this guy thinks it's okay to da da da, you know, right. and, and to call him out on that stuff. And for that kind of, for any boss who's interested in making money and seeing his business be successful, that kind of behavior is an intolerable distraction from the, the main focus of why we're all here today. So the boss needs to take control at that point, um, but say the boss doesn't. And the boss is like, you know what, you're overreacting. It was just a joke. Yeah, stop being such a stop big baby. Stop being such a big baby. Get over yourself. Yeah. Then what? Oh, well, I've got choices, don't I? At that point, it's sort of like being in a marriage with somebody who's abusive. Um, but what if I'm really poor and I don't have much money? And, and, and if I get a divorce, I'll be impoverished. Well, you know, I, we need to think about these things. Because, again, if I'm not ready to manage my life intelligently then bad things are going to happen. If I get employed by an employer who thinks it's okay for other people to demean me or call me names or use racist put-downs, that's, uh, that's on me. I'm the one who chose to work for that person. And the next time around, I won't be so naive. I'll, I'll be asking the next potential employer, hey, how do you guys feel about verbal abuse here between, you know, at this workplace between employees? And so, how do you handle that? I'm going to be asking questions about that. So say you are in a position, and I, and I suspect this is why so many women do not report sexual harassment, um, is because they feel like they need the job. They don't want to quit, maybe, you know, for whatever reason. Um, how do you, are there, do you have any ways of dealing with it short of leaving? You know, the whole point of abuse, whether it's sexual or not, is to have control over another human being. So if you're trying to negotiate a way in which I'm going to be nicer about being controlling, it's sort of a dead on arrival kind of idea. I mean, at some point, it really is a moral issue that each one of us has to figure out for ourselves. Am I going to tolerate being abused or not? Am I going to take responsibility for my abuse of this other person or not? And sometimes there's no way to unring that bell. You know, I took this job or I, I left my home. I've spent all this money getting to where I am. And now I have this moral conundrum. Well, that's actually a normal part of life. That happens in our relationships. It happens with our children. It happens with our friends. And it happens at work. Why wouldn't it? And when it comes to 
these sorts of issues, you know, when we're talking about sexual harassment, I, I think I need to take responsibility for that as well. It's a very, it's a, it's a tough lifestyle in a way because it's one of those very few areas where I think zero tolerance is important. Because if I tolerate any abuse, what I'm doing is teaching the abuser that it's okay to treat me that way. And for the abuser who's interested in power and control, that just feeds his, his desire to have even more power and control. And we're eventually going to end up having more and more of that. So um, not all men who abuse their wives beat them on a regular basis. Just intimidating them once really well and then seeing her be afraid for the next 20 years, sometimes that's enough because he's still getting his way. So if you're a woman and you're, you're a co-worker and say that you're equals um, on the totem pole um, and he consistently makes jokes that make you uncomfortable or uses words that make you uncomfortable... Um, I, I mean, I, I don't see anything wrong with calling him out every time. You know, one of the things I, I told my niece is when people make racist jokes to you, um, ask them to explain why it's funny. Uh, that's a good technique. <laughs> right. I don't understand the joke. Can you explain it to me? Right. Right. That kind of is a joke killer for sure. Right. And then, and, but even on this one, you could say, and I know that we come off as, as wet blankets when we do this, but you know, would you say that to your wife? Would you say that to your daughter? Would you say that to your mother? You know, then why do you think it's okay to say it to me? You know, for me, um, with my own history of pigheadedness and, uh, stubbornness, sometimes subtle doesn't get it. And that, that can be a little bit subtle because if I was a guy and another guy had called me a name, or put me down, I don't think I'd be that soft-spoken and gentle with him. And this is a part of, you know, workplace culture that may be different from one woman talking to another woman. It's, it's, it's really hard, I think, being in a situation like this when your society and your family have trained you to be a certain way and you're more comfortable being a certain way and you, you want to negotiate, you want to you know, have everybody get along. But there are people who are just abusive and are not interested in changing. And so until they get the idea that you're not a doormat, they're going to keep abusing you. And the challenge would be, uh, now what do I have to do to make sure they, they understand that that's never going to be okay? And that, I think it's really hard for women because it means being very powerfully assertive. But if I'm not capable of that, then maybe I need to go back and learn some things so that I can come back and be ready for that. It might be time to talk to some girlfriends about this. It might be time to even talk to a, uh, a counselor, somebody who can train me in being more assertive. But this is hard for everybody. I think it's especially hard for women. And then when you throw the sexual component on top of it, it becomes even harder. Now, We've traveled a lot. We have. This was, this is, this, honestly, this conversation is the first one that's made me kind of sad. Cause just the subject matter? Or my well, responses? just, no, the, just the idea that um, sometimes there's nothing you can, well, and I guess we've had the same conversation about marriages. There's nothing you can do but leave. Sometimes. Right? That's, that's the only option is to leave. And I don't know why it makes me sadder that you'd have to leave a job than marriage. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Um, <laughs> because you count on it. Uh, because it's so big to you right, right? now. Right, it's how you define if you had, yourself. If you had a great marriage, 
right now. True. You wouldn't have your all invested in all these relationships at work and on your, your self-worth that comes from your work and, and all the rest. So and that's why you'll hear me say uh, about Alfred Adler, it's so important to be looking at career, friendship, and love. I need all three because if I lose one of them, I got the other two. Right. Well, let me just tell you, though, part of this um, is, is not about me because I know that I am in a place in my life and in my career where I can tell people, <laughs> knock it off. Right. Um, I can also, I'm, I'm in a position where I can walk away, right? Mm-hmm. What I worry about, I worry about other women. I worry about younger women, you know, women who are maybe not as confident, who are not as set, who are not as financially stable, who don't have those options, you know, who, who don't feel like they can walk away or don't feel like they can tell somebody to stop. I, I, and maybe this is a whole nother podcast is how to stand up for yourself. Well, if we didn't have a heart that would break for the suffering of those who are more vulnerable than ourselves, what kind of human would we be? So I think that's why we have these conversations, Jackie, is we have a desire to share some helpful relationship technology with people that will protect them when others aren't around. Right. Because that's really what we want for everyone we care about, from our kids on out across this world of ours. We, we can't be a bodyguard for everybody. We have to teach people how to stand up for themselves. And for some people, the way they do that, first of all, is by having a horrible experience. Right. So this is something um, that we should talk about another time, is tools for standing up for yourself in a situation like this. Because obviously, um, we don't live in this perfect world that we talked about. And so, and this is, you know, another hour of conversation. So Stephen, this has been really fascinating. Thank you for your information. And, and let's talk again about teaching not just women, but men, how to stand up for themselves in the workplace. Sounds like a good idea. Thank you. So um, I get to ask the questions on this show, which is super fun for me. But if you have questions, go ahead and tweet Stephen at Stephen Ng MFT with your questions and we will bring them in on a future podcast. This has been a production by Ng Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Pichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com.